We are almost done with our series um, that we've been calling From Death to Life. And in this series, we've looked at the various aspects of our salvation, um, the, the, the different parts of what God has done to us in what we've called this unbreakable chain, um, which began with God calling us to himself, having chosen us from before the foundation of the world, and it will uh, culminate in uh, our talk next week when we look at how he will glorify us in the age to come. Um, and so we're coming up close to the end uh, of this series. And each week we've looked at these different parts and we've, we've asked the question, what does this mean? So we've looked at uh, God choosing us and we asked, what does it mean that God chose us? Or we looked at justification, and we asked, what does it mean that God has justified us? Uh, or last week, what does it mean that God is sanctifying us? And we've been asking that question, what does this mean? Today, we're not going to ask the question, what does this mean? We're going to ask, why does this matter? Or to put it another way, what bearing does this have on my life? And we're looking at... Uh, this idea of preservation, that God is preserving us. We're not going to ask, what does that mean? We're going to ask, what, how does that impact our lives? Or how do we view our lives through the lens of God preserving us? And, um, you know, to put it simply, preservation is this idea that God, who has begun to work salvation in us, will complete that salvation in us at the end. That he holds us in his hands and carries us through life. He's preserving us. Like how um, in, in days past you would take meat and put salt on it to preserve it for later consumption. God is holding us and preserving us through life. And that's as it, as it is plainly. But now let's ask, why does that matter for today? Or what, what does that mean for my life today? And we're going to look at Romans 5, and we're going to ask that question specifically as it pertains to how do we go through life and encounter suffering? How do we engage with the trials and tribulations of life if indeed God is holding us in his hands? Um, that's what Paul wants us to learn is how do we approach pain and suffering, the calamities and troubles of life? What is our attitude towards it? You know, the Apostle James says to count it all as joy when we face trials of various kinds. So how do we approach life? How do we approach the suffering of life with joy? And the Bible is filled with this promise that we will encounter pain and suffering. Jesus, in, in fact, promises us that we will face tribulation in this world. And, and whether we're suffering because we live in a fallen world that uh, tends towards chaos, and so we feel the effects of that broken world, or maybe our physical bodies are going through pain because our, our bodies exist in this broken world, or maybe we have been sinned against by other people and that hurts us. Or maybe we have sinned ourselves and are facing the consequences 
of our sin, whatever it is that we're going through, whatever suffering our lives go through, how do we approach it the way that Paul says we can approach it, which is with joy? That's what Romans 5 teaches us, that God is so preserving our lives that even as we go through suffering, we can approach it with joy. And so we're going to read Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. And as we go through, we're going to learn three things. So if you want to take notes or follow along mentally with where we're going, this is it. There's three things. We can rejoice in our suffering because, one, we have peace with God. Two, we can rejoice in our suffering because through suffering we grow in maturity. And third, we can rejoice in our suffering because it produces a hope that does not put us to shame. We can rejoice in suffering because we have peace with God, we grow in maturity, and it produces a hope that doesn't put us to shame. Let's read Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray now, uh, would you use your spirit to speak to us and comfort us and lead us to your Son, through whom we can rejoice in our suffering. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So first, we can rejoice in our sufferings because we have peace with God. Look at the flow of Paul's argument. In verse 1, he says that through faith we have been justified, and because of that, we have peace with God. And then that peace with God in verse 2 is the grace in which we stand, or it's the grace in which we have been placed. It's our position. That position is peace with God. And it's because of this that we can rejoice We rejoice in two things. First, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which means that we know with certainty that our peace with God will come to final fruition 
uh, in, in the glory of God in the age to come. But also, in verse 3, not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we also, because we've been justified by faith and have peace with God, we rejoice in our sufferings. These are connected because we stand in the grace of being at peace with God, we can rejoice in our sufferings. So how are those related? Well, let's first look at this grace in which we stand, that we are at peace with God. Peace, as Paul is using it here, is this relational term. To be at peace with someone is to relate to them in a particular way, specifically to relate to them in a positive way in which there's flourishing between them. It means the absence of war, the absence of strife and hostility. It means instead the presence of abundant life. And to be clear, this is peace with God. It's not peace about God. It's not some internal um, composure or tranquility with regard to God. Like, I am at peace about the idea of God. It's peace with God. It's a relationship. It's how we relate to him. And how do we have peace with God? Paul says it's because we have been justified. We have been reconciled to him. We were once estranged from him and alienated from God, cut off from the life of God. We were rebellious toward him. We were far from him. These are all ways that the Bible talks about our state of being in relationship to God when we were still in our sin. We were far from God. But now we have been reconciled to God. We have been brought near to him. We have been welcomed by Christ, now in relationship with him. We have been placed no longer in a position of of war with God, but we are now placed in a position of favor with God. We have peace with him. Therefore, we have that peace of mind with God because, first and foremost, we are at peace with God. We are at peace with God, not at war with God. Paul says this is because we have been justified by faith. Let me remind you, we talked about justification a few weeks ago, but that word, we see it all over the New Testament. To be justified by God is to be declared righteous before him. That our standing with God is one of righteousness. And we have this through faith in Jesus not because of anything that we have done to make ourselves worthy of that. Through Christ alone, we are now seen as righteous before God. We are justified. And because we are justified, we have peace with God. So how does this help us rejoice in our suffering? How does knowing that we are at peace with God and not at war with God, how does that help us celebrate, or not celebrate, but have joy in the midst of our suffering. I think today we have a hard time in the world understanding why we suffer. 
common to suffering is this idea that we have this self-agency and that if we do good things in the world, well, then the world will treat us good in response. But if that we do bad things in the world, the world will treat us in a bad way. So if we do good, we will be blessed, whether that's from God or the gods or the world or whatever. But if we do bad, then we will receive wrath and harm and suffering and pain. This is, you know, in, in the East, this is what karma is. But here in the West, we think of it that way too. That if I'm a good person, I should expect to receive something good in return. But if I do bad, well, then I suffer. And therefore, when we do suffer, we grow anxious trying to figure out what happened. What did I do? What wrong thing did I do that I need to atone for or repent of or ask forgiveness for so that I no longer suffer? That's a common way of understanding why we have pain in this world. You know, even think of the idea of purgatory in in Catholicism. It's this understanding of you have to suffer before you can get into heaven, suffer for the wrong things that you have done through your lifetime before you can enter into paradise. We have this We approach suffering through that lens. I must have done something bad, and so therefore I'm suffering. But if we are at peace with God and not at war with God, we might not know all the reasons why we're suffering, but we can be sure of this. We are not suffering because God is being vengeful or wrathful towards us. That our suffering and pain in life is not the result of God pouring out his judgment upon us because of our sin. Remember, if we are justified, then we are righteous in his sight. Our sins are forgiven. And so we do not receive the wrath of God. This is what Paul says later in Romans, that uh, therefore in Christ there is therefore now no condemnation. We can rejoice in our suffering because we know that we're not suffering because God is vengeful towards us. Let me be clear, though. When we sin, and especially sin against other people, there can be real consequences for that sin that can be painful. But those consequences of our sin is not God's wrath. It is actually his fatherly love of discipline. We know for certain that it is not God's wrath, but it is actually for our good. He is disciplining us. So we can rejoice in our suffering, because we can know for certain it is not because God is wrathful. We are not at war with God. We are at peace with God. Second, we can rejoice in our sufferings because through them, God is growing us in Christian maturity. 
Through our sufferings, God is growing us in Christian maturity. Just like Paul has taught us before and what we've been looking at in this series, that uh, God works in these processes. You know, Paul says that we were elected and that led to calling and our calling led to justification. Our justification led to sanctification, one thing after another. Paul says, in our suffering, God uses these cause and effects to grow us. Suffering leads to endurance, and endurance leads to character, and character leads to hope. It's this process that God is using in us to grow us so that in the end, we are better off having suffered than we would be having run away from that pain, trying to hide it. And Paul is not... Paul is not unaware of the various kinds of suffering that we might go through. He was very well acquainted with this kind of grief. He understood suffering to include things like distress and anxiety, things like persecution, but even famine and nakedness and danger. He writes in 2 Corinthians that at one time he was so utterly burdened in his life that he was uh, so beyond his own strength that he despaired of life itself. Paul was imprisoned, beaten to the brink of death. He was stoned, shipwrecked, left adrift at sea. He says that he was at danger from robbers and thieves. He had many sleepless nights. He lived in hunger and in thirst without food, left out in the cold. Paul knew what it meant to suffer in this life, both as a natural part of living in this world and as being sent on mission with the gospel, facing opposition. He understood suffering, but Paul is saying, don't run away from suffering. Don't suppress this suffering. Don't ignore it. God wants to use it to grow you, to produce growth and Christian maturity in you. Embrace it. One author has put it this way, that suffering is the gymnasium of God in which he trains us to grow stronger. If you watch any of the Winter Olympics the last several weeks, you've seen some of the top performers that this world has ever seen, all competing for the top prize of the gold medal. But for years, these athletes have been training in the gym. They have been working and practicing, training their bodies and their muscles and their minds to compete. Suffering is the gymnasium in which God is training us for faithful living. Let's see what Paul says about this training process. First, suffering produces endurance. It produces perseverance. This word is, is a word that means being able to live under trying circumstances, to be able to bear up difficulties enabling us to, to live uh, under significant troubling circumstances. Think of these, you know, the stone sculpture of, of Atlas carrying the world on his shoulders. 
being able to bear up whatever life can throw at you. This is the result of going through suffering. We learn endurance. We learn to be steadfast when trouble comes our way. We learn to become an anchor in the stormy waters of life. Suffering produces endurance that we can stand firm when life wears away from us. Think of the story of uh, David and Goliath. When Goliath came before the armies of Israel and terrified them, what did they do? They cowered away. But then here comes David. David, who out in the fields could take on lions and bears, who actually faced trouble and took it down and grew in his endurance and perseverance through trouble. When he saw Goliath, he had courage. He was a man of endurance. And and that together with his trust in the Lord that he was fighting for the Lord's army and that the Lord would fight for him, he approached the giant. Suffering, what, what David had gone through, produced in him this steadfast endurance, the ability to stand up under pressure. But then Paul goes on. He says that endurance not only produces, sorry, suffering not only produces endurance, but then endurance produces character. Character is this quality of, of being put to the test and being found true and reliable trustworthy. It's similar to the idea of being someone of integrity. What you see is what you get. There's no deception in that man or woman. They have proven themselves through trials, proven themselves to be a person of character, a person who can be trusted, who you can go to for help in times of need. You can go to them with a confession of sin or an admission of guilt. You can trust that they will not mock you. They will not reject you. They will not condemn you. They will pray for you and counsel you and care for you. This is a person of character. This is a person firm in their faith, one who is not wavering, one who responds to their doubts with study and diligence, someone who is convictional, who rests upon the truth of their faith. Someone who knows what is true, who knows what God's word says and trusts in it. A man or woman of character is one whom others flock to when they are suffering in order to seek guidance and support. Paul says that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And character produces hope, and we're going to talk about hope in a minute. But I want to ask a few questions First, about how we approach suffering. Is your attitude towards suffering like this? That suffering is God's gymnasium to grow you? Or is your attitude towards suffering one of fear and cowardice or suppression? Consider the way you might pray. Do you pray only for comfort and protection from the world of danger? Or do we also pray that the Lord would grow us, even if that meant growth through discomfort, growth through pain, growth through suffering? 
What's your attitude towards suffering? What about this? If you're currently suffering, if you're currently going through something, is your prayer that the Lord would relieve you of this burden? Or is your prayer that God would grow you through this burden? Let me be clear. We we see in Jesus' life and his miracles that pain and suffering are not good things in themselves. Like, God's redemptive and restorative purposes lead to healing and restoration, to get rid of pain and suffering. Nonetheless, God uses it to grow us. And so if you're in it, is your prayer that you would be relieved from it, or is your prayer that God would grow you in it? I think this is important for us to ask with regard to our church. Like, we've been now worshiping for a year and a half, and for those who have been with us the whole time, like, there have been seasons of hurt and pain and suffering, sometimes of weariness, sometimes of being stretched too thin. We've had people grow close to us that have left us for various reasons. This has been a painful year and a half. But is our approach towards that pain one in which we ask the Lord not to deliver us from it only, but that God would grow us from it? How are we growing as a church through these seasons of pain? Paul tells us that we can rejoice in our suffering because in our suffering, God uses it to grow us in Christian maturity. Finally, we can rejoice in our suffering because our suffering produces a hope that does not put us to shame. We see that right there in verse 5. The hope that is produced within us does not put us to shame. Or in other words, it doesn't let us down. The hope that we find in suffering does not fail us. When Paul talks about hope here, he isn't talking about this future aspiration something we hope for in the future. He's using it in a sense of something that we fall back upon, like a a safety net that catches us, you know, like a trust fall, that kind of hope. And used in this way, we could say that these hopes are, are what we turn to when life gets difficult, like a crutch that we hold on to when our feet stumble and fail. Here's a a little example. Anyone else here, this is true of them, that if their spouse leaves for the weekend, the house just goes out of order and dishes don't get washed and clothes don't get folded or put in the laundry. I mean, that's, I I feel like when stability ceases and Sarah leaves for the weekend, I sort of fall apart. Our hopes are the things that we fall back upon when life falls apart to help hold us up. Like when we're in pain, we fall back on things that bring us relief. Maybe for you, it's when life goes crazy, you overdrink or overeat. When life gets chaotic, you binge TV shows, try to escape the pain of the world. 
Or, or maybe it's even worse things. I know addictions, whether that be addictions to drugs or pornography, whatever. Addictions are our attempt to self-medicate ourselves through the pain of life. When your life begins to get uncomfortable and suffering creeps in, what do you turn to for relief? That is your hope. But these hopes don't ultimately heal us. They cannot carry us through suffering so that we are better off on the other end. These hopes do put us to shame. They do fail us. So in a sense, suffering exposes for us those false hopes. Suffering is sort of this refining fire in which we are exposed to see what is it that we're trusting in. Those things, hopefully, by the grace of God, get burned away. Suffering sheds light on the things that we use to get through pain. But Paul says we can rejoice in our suffering because it produces in us a hope that doesn't put us to shame. What is that hope? What is it that we can look to in the midst of our suffering that will not put us to shame? Paul says that it is the hope in the love of a God who has suffered too. It is hope in a God who loves us and that love has been poured out in us. This God has suffered. He has suffered on our behalf. He knows what it feels like to go through pain. He knows what it feels like to go through trial. He suffered because of us. But he suffered for love. This is the love that does not fail us. It does not put us to shame. In verse 8, Paul tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This was the demonstration of God's love. Suffering produces hope, hope in a God who has suffered to demonstrate his love for us. And that love will not fail us. That love is not conditioned upon your behavior. That love is not conditioned upon your holiness. That love is not conditioned upon your performance in life, whether you're going through suffering or not. That love is love that loved us despite our sin. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is an anchor point, a, a truth, an objective reality that will not waver. So that when our lives crumble, when suffering comes up in our lives, when we go through pain and tribulation, we have something to hold on to that will not fail us, that will not fade away, that will not put us to shame. That is the love of God demonstrated at the cross where Jesus died for us. Paul says, God holds us in his hands. 
He is carrying us through this life. And we can be sure that if he is holding us in his hands, when suffering comes, we can rejoice. Because we know he loves us, we're at peace with him. We can rejoice because God uses it to grow us. And we can rejoice because in the midst of our suffering, we can cling tighter to the cross where he has demonstrated his love for you. Let's pray.